This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Alright, hey simple passive cash flow listeners. Today I've got Graham Parnum here, who is uh, from Highlands Residential Mortgage. He is uh, number one, top 1% originators in the United States. And uh, we are going to talk about the latest changes. Some things are the same inside the lending world. Some things have changed and we're going to dig into that. And this is probably going for the folks, you know, buying turnkey rentals, single family homes, still applying for that one to four residential unit zone. But how's it going, Graham? Good. And yourself? Awesome. I think the folks are ready to dig down deep into the nitty gritty here. And that's kind of the high level. What are the big pieces in terms of how do you get a loan? What are the big things that the lenders look at? these days? I am a uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac lender, which if you think about after the uh, 2008 mortgage meltdown, we're really down to those type outlets of supplying residential mortgage lending for the one to four family units. The way underwriters look at it in the Fannie world is there's three things we look at. Your credit, how much money you make, how much money you have. It's that simple. And, you know, we can touch on some of those points throughout the, the interview here. But uh, some of the uh, big things that we look at, of course, is your credit. We have a minimum threshold of 620 or higher. The way the income piece works is we take whatever existing debt that you currently have, on a gross monthly uh, average basis. And then we divide that into whatever the debts you have. And we come up with a thing called debt to income ratios. Some lenders have a flavor for risk that stop at 43, 45. We actually go up to close to 50. And that's kind of a, a hit or miss. Some days it's 49, some days it's 50. It's all determined by the underwriting engines, excuse me, the underwriting engine that is sponsored by Fannie Mae. It's called the desktop underwriter. And we take all your information, we upload it into the system. Within a matter of seconds, we get an approval. Comes back, says we like the borrower, but, uh, you know, give us a pay stub, give us a bank statement, whatever. And if the ratios are in line with, you know, the 45% to 49% back-end ratio, then we're good to go. It's very different from the commercial world because the commercial world underwrites the property. Okay. And if the property is good to go, it's turning out a profit. That's good. But we underwrite the individual. Now, as far as the property is concerned, we do take a look at the appraisal. We want to make sure it's an as-is property. And we'll also uh, ask for the appraiser to give us an income analysis. We refer to it as the 1007 report, which is an average market rent analysis. And typically, most of the turnkey providers out there offering product today will usually take that into their consideration when they're making an offering in their performance that that will actually make the rent according to the average market rent. So we will give you credit from that property to your income ratios. A lot of lenders won't do that. They like to see you get seasoned as a landlord for two years, and then they'll let you have it. We'll give it to you on the subject property. Now, that used to be an old requirement, right? Before, like maybe two, three years ago, you had that that seasoning requirement, but that has gone away. And It it has, I would say, for the majority of the, the lenders, but there's some lenders out there that are still digging their heels in it, believe it or not. We don't. I mean, we're straight up fanny. And that kind of leads into a thing called overlays. Overlays is something that a particular originator will say, okay, we're going to go up straight up Fannie Mae guidelines, but we're going to add additional guidelines on top because this is our flavor for risk. And some of those say, okay, the seasoning requirements we may agree with, we may not. It's really hit or miss, but we don't have that problem. We give you full income credit. 
Right. Maybe I'll, I'll kind of simplify that for the folks. So you got Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac out there. They've got certain guidelines. And we've talked about this in the past. And we call it the box. And we'll kind of get into the dimensions and specs of this box. You get a loan that fits in that box. You get the best terms and the rates. And it's insured by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So Correct. These lenders are running out there trying to find people and, you know, there's all kinds of lenders out there. They're kind of, a lot of them are, most of them are kind of scammers in my opinion. <laughs> they bump up the origination fees by a huge amount. They're kind of trolls out there in a way. They all kind of have this cool background to their profile picture, but they're just some dude at home I mean, wearing <laughs> shorts like how I am, you know? <laughs> It's kind of like a black market for loans. Like they'll troll around Facebook groups and they'll just cut and paste this big thing that looks impressive. And what they're doing is they're going to take the Fannie Mae loan and then put, what, what did you call them? Overlays and overlays and overlays on it so that they can get their profit margin in there. One of the things, not necessarily to agree or disagree in regards to what the trollers, as you say, are doing out there, since the Dodd-Frank Act, it really has eliminated a lot of the bottom feeders, as you might say. It's required us to all get licensed, which is good. That eliminated a whole bunch of people because they couldn't even pass the background check, nor could they pass the credit <laughs> score check. I mean, it's crazy. We're, we're analyzed so, uh, so heavily. If I had like a a 550 credit score, I probably couldn't originate loans because it wouldn't you know, be acceptable to the state requirements. But because of that, there's, there's two sets of, of originators. There's brokers and there's mortgage bankers. The guys you're referring to are the brokers. They can work out of the trunk of their car. They can send loans to whoever they so choose to do if they, you know, with their favorite investor lender or whatever. But a lot of times from a service level, they can't provide the service because they're waiting on somebody else to do their job. They have no control over the loan where we do everything in-house. Are they playing games with the rates out there still today? Yeah, probably so. Are some of the brokers out there charging excessive fees? Yeah, they do. But I think for the most part, it's been narrowed down since the Dodd-Frank Act. Keep us a little more in line, so to speak. But yeah, there's, there's still guys out there scamming and running around, you know, doing things they shouldn't do. So the, one of the key things is like, as an investor, you want to be able to talk to your broker who's really just kind of a sales guy in a way. And the, they're not the one underwriting the loan. They have a guy in the back office underwriting it. So the brokers, they're underwriters with a different company typically. But what, right. what you're saying is like with the mortgage banks, they work for the same company. Their goals may not be aligned and they may have to work things internally, but at least that's better than what it, working with a broker that goes to somebody in a different company. But there could be a good relationship there. <clears throat> there are a lot of lenders or brokers out there that say they understand how to do turnkey loans. And to touch a little bit on the turnkey loans, and since the 08 bust, one of the things that Fannie Mae did rewrite because they were having a lot of fraud, so to speak, in the straw buying area. If you're not familiar with what straw buying area is, is uh, the straw buyers are somebody that will go out and find an individual, use their credit, do their power of attorney, sign the whole nine yards, and then the, the loan itself will go bust. The, a lot of the straw buying has gone away. I do feel that as a company, we scrutinize that more. But more importantly, as an originator, if you understand how to do turnkey loans because of that policy they wrote in, in Fannie Mae, it says that we don't like to have a seller to be a participant in the management of the property once it's sold. Well, wait a minute. 
that's a benefit. You and I both know that, okay? But because of the way it's written, there's a lot of investors, a lot of lenders out there that don't understand that and interpret the wrong way where the loan originator, the guy itself taking the application, gets it all packaged up, sends it over to whatever investor they want to get it to be underwritten and the investor put the brakes on in the, in the final hours. We don't like uh, turnkey property loans. We won't do them. We as a mortgage banker, we have the ability to deliver most of our loans to Fannie Mae. We also can deliver them to aggregators or servicers. And let's say we have 20 servicers that we can deliver it to. Well, of those 20, only two will do turnkey property loans because those are the only two that understand that whole policy. Working with those guys out of the trunk of their car, they're desperate for loans. They're trying to get owner-occupied transactions, second homes, whatever they can get, cash out investment loans. I work with investors all day. That's all I do. We close about 30 to 50 loans a month. I am an investor. Now, that helps a lot because... I'm drinking the same Kool-Aid lane that you're out there promoting, and I've been doing this for close to 15 years. It's my personal investing. I end up uh, buying like eight last year and five this year, and it's all from turnkeys, and it makes sense. It really does. And that Kool-Aid is green. (laughs) (laughs) So so kind of, I mean, obviously you don't want to work with a guy working on his back trunk and, you know, working in remotely. I guess that's always been a joke. But you know, like the big banks, right? People come up to me, they're like, yeah, I got a guy in Chase Bank who helped me get my residential mortgage for my primary residence. And typically those guys will have a lot of overlays too, because they're just- Always. And here here in Hawaii, it's horrible. They're so conservative here. I'm like, man, you got to work with somebody like, you know, who's worked with non-owner occupied folks. And like you said, like they work with these turnkey provider type investments. I get that all the time. People say, okay, well, you know, I, I've got my all my money at Chase Bank. It makes me feel warm and fuzzy because they're big. Well, I guess what? The, the biggest is not always the best. In There's the a reason money. why they got to pay for all that junk. Yeah, yeah. And, and, the, and the front end personnel is, is also the key because they hire these kids out of college that don't know anything about the lending business. They pay them a small salary and they're going to get the kind of performance that you expect to get from somebody like that. You could get hung up processing that loan and underwriting anywhere from probably 45 to 60 days, if not longer. And the big banks are horrible. They really are. And if somebody out there is working for Chase or Bank of America or Wells Fargo, I mean, I used to work for them and they used to be great in their day, but not anymore because the front end personnel, they don't care. They get your application, throw it on a conveyor belt and good luck if you get it closed. Right. And we won't talk too much about portfolio loans. I mean, that's for people who can't qualify for the things we'll talk about, the debt to income ratio, the credit scores, the down payments. But my experience when I was getting Fannie Mae out, and we'll talk about that too. And here I had 10 single Fannie Mae loans and I got maxed out. I had to look at portfolio loans. Again, that was a lot of just these salesmen would like tell me, yeah, we can, we can do 5.25 and 20 year, whatever. And then I talked to a lot of other investors doing it and there was a lot of get you in the door. Then the underwriting is like, well, we don't like this appraisal. So we're really going to give you like 50% debt to income or LTV on this one and just killed the deal. But it wasted your time. And, you know, potentially hard money in the process. I'm right where you are. I'm fannied out as well. I've closed three this year, non-fanny products. If you want to give me a call, uh, I can be glad to turn you on to a couple of guys that I feel comfortable with. But yeah, the terms, they're nowhere near what Fanny can offer. They're typically, like you say, a 20 to 25 year AM. They do have some 30 year or 30 year products, but the rates are very, very high, like up in the sevens, close to the eights, close three this year that were in the fives, but they were like five year arm. And they do can, they, they will make those adjustments once they get the appraisal back because they run a, a different scenario versus what we do from the debt to income where they can throttle that, that loan to value back 
depending on the kind of income that's going to kick out. It's not necessarily a hit or miss, but I think there's some guys out that do it really good. But the portfolio guys, they're difficult to work with. They really are. You just never know what you're going to get. Right. I mean, I, I always suggest guys that get at least a few properties and look to just going to the syndications as a LP at that point, especially if you're an accredited investor. But today's podcast is more for the guy's net worth, zero to $500,000, getting their first few single family homes. Um, yeah, let's kind of get down into the nitty gritty here and let's go down into the details. And you folks at home can probably like, get your, if you haven't got your pen and paper out, now's the time. If you're listening to this podcast and implementing the strategies discussed, you're likely to become financially free in three to seven years, whether or not you choose to use my coaching services or not. For most of you I talk to in our free intro coaching calls, I see a theme of mission and investing for greater good. I found an investment that pays 20% of their revenue to improving the lives of their community by improving living conditions and paying for children's education. To learn more about this investment, check out Simple Passive Cashflow backslash coffee. And by the way, it's not all altruistic. This specialty coffee makes for an amazing performer. The first thing here, let's talk about this whole, you know, you and I were talking about the 10 properties, you know, you got 10 Fannie Mae's, the golden tickets. Let's talk about the higher level of like acquiring properties one through four first and then how things change after that? Well, up until I'm going to say about a year ago, it's, it's been gradually changing. Let me just kind of go back to 08. 08, we, all, we had Fannie and Freddie were up to 10, bust. Everybody had a knee jerk. Draw, uh, they all throttled back to four. Eight to 10 months later, and Fannie says, no, let's go back to 10. But what they said, okay, the one through four, we're going to have a down to 620 credit score, 20% down so forth and so on. And then six to 10, you would have to have a 720 credit score, 25% down, so forth and so on. And the, and the reserve requirements have changed. Since then, both actually Fred, Freddie and Fannie, we deliver the majority of our loans to Fannie. I would say most lenders probably deliver one out of 10 to Fan, to Freddie versus Fannie because Fannie's a little easier to deliver to. I think their, their guidelines are more in line for the investor. From the standpoint of down payment requirements today, you can do up to 10 loans at 20% down. You can go up to six loans at 620 credit score or, or higher. Loans 7, 8, 9, and 10, you do have to have a 720 credit score but you can do 20% down on a single family all the way up to 10. The multifamilies, the two to four units, it's always been 75 across the board, so 25% down. I'll add a few things onto there. When uh, Graham's talking about Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac loans, two different government agencies, I think for you guys listening, you don't really have to pay attention to that. Don't worry about that. Let, let Graham, those requirements change all the time. Let the expert kind of manage that for you not really that important. And then, you know, when you're saying 10 uh, loans per name, what a lot of people, what they'll try to do is if, if they can do it is if one spouse, both spouses are working and it has good income, apply for them separately. So as a household, you can get 10 in your name, 10 in your spouse's name. I don't know why you'd want to do that, to be honest. That's a lot of headaches, but hey, <laughs> that's, uh, that's the best way of optimizing should you that, go down this road. I get that daily. Uh, husband and wife starting their inventory, want to grow their portfolio, and they want to make use of the Fannie products up to 10 for both of them. Get partners that are wanting to do that. So my advice is, you know, I know you say it's kind of a pain. Yeah, it could be, but we try not to make it a pain. And one of the main things I want to advise people, and this rule of up to 10 loans on your credit report's been around since Moby was a minnow, but that's changed since about two years ago. The way it reads now, 
it's a one to four family property that you are entitled with. If it's 1% up to 100%, whether it be through an LLC, partnership, individual names, whatever the case, if you have any ownership of that property that has any type of leverage against it, Fannie Mae loan, commercial loan, HELOC, you name it, that's considered as counted as one against you. Now, one of the mistakes that the husband and wife will do all the time is, okay, the husband does one, we're going to put the wife in title. Well, you just took away one from her. But a lot of times I say, okay, we're going to do one in my name, and then we're going to throw it into an LLC. Well, if the LLC is not a single member, it's got the husband and wife on it. Well, once again, you took one away from her. Same thing with the partnership, same thing with the trust. So keep that in mind if you're trying to accomplish the 20 loans, 10 for the husband, 10 for the wife, partner, or whatever the case, that that will come back to haunt you. So if you're going to, you're going to put the loan in one person's name, put the title in their name too. Only. Yeah. So you hit to achieve that goal. After you hit the 20, if you want to put them all together in the LLC or whatever, it's up to you because you're fanning out at that point. So let's talk about talking single family homes. So what if they're buying like two to four units? And once you go over four units, that's commercial. Correct. Um, you're not going to get the Fannie Freddie as we're talking here. But what if they get like fourplexes? How does that change to the game? I mean, can they only get it is two and a half of those things or how does that work? No, it's considered an individual unit. Okay. Or an individual number of loans for Fannie Mae. And if you're starting off, you want to get four plexus. And if you want to buy 10 four plexus, so be it. No problem. It's just 25% down for those units. Okay. And the only other difference would be the appraisal is probably another hundred dollars higher because they're four units. Right. So I'll highlight that for, for the folks who are a little slower. 20% down on the first 10 finance properties if it's a single you know, single family home and then 25% for two to four units. So a little bit more down payment there. Correct. So let's dig into the debt to income considerations when getting these loans. Because I think this is what most people will, you know, most people I talk to, they're like, well, my, you know, I, I quit my job the other, the other week and my spouse is still working. And I doubt we, we, we get a loan. And I'm like, do you even know you need to talk to a lender and, and spreadsheet this out and know for sure. And then know when, in, when you're going to be able to get that income so you know your timeline. How do you calculate your DTI without kind of getting too much into it? So this from a high level that you know. Well, let's touch bases on that scenario because I get that quite often. There's a lot of real estate educators out there that are saying, okay, let's go out and start flipping properties. Okay, so we find a property, we flip it, make some money. Well, then you know what? I'm going to quit my job because I just made $20,000 on this flip. Okay, fine. But in the Fannie Mae world, we look at consistency. Because of the Dodd-Frank Act, there's a thing called the ATR, ability to repay. And we have to prove this individual has that ability to repay. And they've went from a salary pay job to a self-employed gig, which means their income is going to be variable. On any kind of variable income for self-employed people, we have to have a track history, okay? So if they just start off flipping houses two months ago, chances are they can't get a, a Fannie Mae loan until they've achieved at least one year of a tax return, and it's still hit or miss. Most of the time, people say, I have to have two years worth, but let's say they had the two years worth. Okay, great. Now we take a look at their net net income because as self-employed people are, we take advantage of all the write-offs that we possibly can. So a lot of people will whittle down their income to the point where they're still not making any money. Well, they can't qualify for a Fannie Mae loan. Keep that in mind, you know, that people come to me all the time. So well, what do I need to make for next year? I said, I can't tell you that. I'm not an accountant. I'm certainly not going to get involved with the IRS. But that, that's a lot of times people will run into that. But the salary people, it's easy. I mean, if you, even if you switch jobs and you went from one to the other and still in the same line of work, we're not going to penalize you whatsoever. We're going to give you that income. So these guys are pretty much 
pretty smart. A lot of them are 1098 or whatever employees that they can write their own salary. So what number are they shooting for? Like 50% DTI these days? Or Well, we like to be comfortable. What we do is when we get the application, we take a look at everything. If they can qualify without having any rental income on the subject property, we like to keep those ratios probably in the mid 40s just to have a little pucker room in there just in case something goes wrong once the underwriter takes a look at it. The buffer that we have, of course, is the income on the subject property because a lot of times if people come in and they exceed that 50% ratio, well, then we bring in the rental income that drops it back down in the 40s or 30s, whatever the case may be. So we have to massage this on every loan. Like you say, it's, it's better to get with the lender see what you potentially can buy before you start making commitments for buying properties. The turnkey providers won't even take a, a contract without having knowledge that you do have an approval from a lender and especially an accredited one. Right. I mean, there's just so much competition for that turnkey stuff these days. That oh, it, they're lined up out the door. It's crazy. Yeah. So I mean, one thing I usually see like hurting a lot of guys is they've got this big house in the Bay Area or Hawaii and then it's they owe like 400 grand on it. I mean, that, that'll kill your DTI, right? <laughs> I can usually tell if somebody's going to make it or not. And you're right. A lot of the guys in California, Hawaii, they've got a primary housing payment of 35, 4,000. That right there is just going to choke you unless you're making some good money. Right. And how does it show like, what if a guy has a million dollar house in Hawaii that it's almost paid off, but he's got like a big 200,000. How does that big HELOC show on the, on DTI comes up? Great point. The HELOCs, I love HELOCs. I think they're great. I've got 150000 just laying there for me to use whenever I need to buy another investment property. But I encourage everybody to get one, whether you use it or not. A lot of people will take use of that. They'll go get, say, 100000 HELOC, and they'll go buy three houses and tap into the HELOC. The great thing about HELOC is it is an interest-only loan, okay, and 99% of the time. So we only count the interest payment. So that's a good thing. Now, the only downside is to HELOCs, they aren't a fixed rate product. They are a variable rate product. It's usually prime plus something. Every now and then I'll see somebody out there saying, no, I got a fixed rate HELOC, which I don't believe, but it is what it is. What we do is we take a look at your last statement or as it math matches up to your credit report. If that's the true payment, then that's all we count against you. It's typically a lot less than your primary residence payment. Right. So like if you have a million dollar house, you own it outright, but you have a $200,000 HELOC, you're going to subtract that from your, you're going to add yeah, that your to your payment's probably going to be five, six, $700 tops. It's not going to be that much. That's on the interest only. And for those, those of you guys listening, don't know what HELOCs are. I've got a little resource page, simplepassivecashflow.com backslash HELOC. My opinion is don't buy a primary residence in a high priced primary market simplepassivecashflow.com backslash home and rent forever as long as you can. <laughs> that's my, that's my advice. for today. It is. Uh, it's amazing how many people I work with in California that have however many investment properties and they're still renting. It's just nuts. It really is. So it's the way to go. I mean, if you can, if you can pay $3,000 a month and control a million dollar property much more than you could have bought, then why not? Right. And then buy all these other properties. True. I will tell you like anything. We're going down here, the, the credit scores, what do you say, 620, Matt, 620 is like the minimum, right? But is Correct. it like, what's the, where you get that gold, the best rate, right? What, what is that number? Good question. Rates are determined by four things. Obviously, credit score. They're also down payment percentage. As an example, on a single family, if you decided to put 25% down on a single family versus 20, you're going to get a much better rate. Loan amount, okay, that's a lot of things people don't understand is there's, Fannie Mae has a loan amount adjustment, 
starts at like 150, 125, 100, and so forth. And people, when they get down to these $50,000, $60,000 loans, their rate's higher than it would be on 150. They go, well, why? It's only a $50,000, $60,000 loan. Well, that's because Fannie made these adjustments and it really leans back toward the fact of profitability for the, for the, the lender. I mean, the lender is going to charge a certain amount for their fees the same way they would on a $500,000 property as they would a $75,000 property. But they always, they make a margin. Let's say it's 1%. Okay. If a 1% on a $50,000 loan versus a half a million dollar loans, obviously there's not much left to pay for compliance, for employees, overhead, and so forth and so on. That's why they have those adjustments. Now, the increments start at 740 for the optimum rate. And then they graduate down 24 increments, 740, 720, 720, 700. Typically, when you get below 700 is when those adjustments really get aggressive. And a lot of times, I mean, you could probably jump a quarter percent rate from, say, 740 down to in the mid 600s. So it is what it is. Not to say we can't get it done, but we still, the rates are still in line. Any last minute things you think people can do if you're like at 730 and then you want to get that best rate? You know, it, it all has to do, it's so funny because I work with individuals in California and I, I think California gets better interest rates than they do here in Texas for some crazy reason. I'm buying it's a primary. Else, everybody, other people just suck over there. That's why. Yeah, I know. It's like, so I know I, I get, I'm buying a primary residence and I pulled my credit last month and I was at 739 and I pay my bills. I have all these loans, but I have zero balances on my credit cards. I just can't get it above that. Where I look at the same profile of individuals in California, and they're at 775, 780. But really, it all has to do with, with how you hold your debt. As an example, if you go out and get a credit card, if, if they give you a limit of $5,000. You jack that up to $4,900. Well, that's going to be a high balance to the ceiling, which that comes back to haunt you. Now, what's crazy is like some guys will go out and buy three rental properties and all of a sudden that same scenario applies. Let's say you get a $100,000 loan. Well, you have a $100,000 balance. You've hit that ceiling. Three times over in most recent days has a tendency to draw that down. The only way to make the score go up, if you have balances on credit cards, pay them off. Other than that, I mean, there's, there's credit experts out there that can give you all kinds of ways to improve your credit. I don't believe in most of them. But I'm just not a credit expert to tell you how to improve your score. Paying off the debt is the best. Right. I mean, I, no, this is, these are all kind of rumors, and I used to play around with this stuff. I mean, you could go out and get a big credit card, $20,000, and it's more about like the, the utilization rate. You want to use the card, but you want to pay it off right away. Correct. So that's a big thing. Once you start to acquire these properties and you get that payment history and all these rentals, it's pretty easy to hit 800 credit score. Yeah. Temporarily, when you go and get that $20,000 credit card or a few of them, now you're going to take that temporary hit, that five, 10 points to apply for it. Correct. Don't screw around six months before you, you talk to Graham or something like that to go get a rental. Exactly. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think it's kind of a waste of your time, to be honest. Just pay the, I mean, what's what's one, like a quarter of a point on a rate? I think people freak out about the interest rates. I mean, it's and more, you're, you're so right. You're so I mean, right. Like, the, like the whole down payment, just down 20%. And yet, the goal here is not to get the best rate, it's to optimize cash flow. Well, people get too focused on rates and they need to focus on the dollars, as you say. And you're, you're so right. I mean, if you put, if you can get a better rate with the 25% down, you have that additional funds, well then do it. Okay. But you know, I've been working with investors for 20 years and you talk to some of the seasoned guys out there and they'll tell you any investor rate below 7% is still a good rate. And that's still true today. I mean, we're, we're still locking loans in at the low sixes right now. I remember when I was buying loans 15 years ago, I remember I had a seven and three quarter rate. 
still made it work. Still cash flowed. Right. It's I mean, all if you, numbers. If you let me put 5% down payment, which you can on a FHA where you lived in it, then I take it. But here, we're only talking 20% down is the minimum and then 25 to get a little bit better, right? Every time I take the 20%, if, now here's the caveat, you still cash flow pretty comfortably. Now that's up to you to find that property. Right. But that's just my opinion. Take it for a grain of salt. Yeah, I mean, it's starting to take away some of the profitability from what you would have had last eight years, but it still works. And I haven't seen, since the rates have been going up, I have not seen the volume slow down. I really haven't. Right. So you mentioned earlier about this minimum loan size. What's the smallest that you guys will touch these days? Like, we go down to 50,000. Yeah. A lot of guys will stop at 75. Some won't even go past 100, but we'll go down to 50,000. Anything below that is really cost ineffective for any company. Yeah, just a waste of your guys' time. I'm yeah. So what is that, like $70,000 purchase price? 65, 62, somewhere in yeah. that area. Yeah. You know. I mean, my recommendation is always go after properties that rent for at least 850, 900 or more because you don't want some of these garbage C-class properties. And I tell people that all the time. You, you got to determine where your sweet spot is on the property and the asset itself. If you pay $50,000 for a property, you're going to get a $50,000 tenant. I've been there. I've done it. I've lived it. And it's just not worth it. My sweet spot's probably 125 and Well, I'd say 100 to say 175 in that ballpark. And I like to stay within like the B, I guess, probably B to C plus categories. And there's a lot of turnkeys guys out there that are often C minus to D properties. And people see these $50,000 properties. Oh my God, are they getting some good returns and they're exceeding that 1%? Yeah. But look at the asset. I mean, look look at the maintenance you're going to have with it. Look at the tenant you're going to have with it. Uh, yeah, some of those are Ponzi schemes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's another thing that some of my guys do. They'll they'll say, okay, we're not going to get a loan. We want to go into some of these cheaper properties, $60,000 properties. The way they logically think about it is, well, we're in with less money. I wouldn't agree at all. You want to use leverage, right? This is why we do this. You can take advantage of this government-sponsored debt, but... At the end of the day, I'm like, whatever. As long as you bought a property, it's fine. It's like if you got kids and they went to a really crappy college, right? And it's like, all right, well, at least they went to college. It's cool. Yeah. <laughs> if you can only afford to do a $50,000 property down, even with a 20% down, you probably shouldn't be an investor, in my opinion. Like you see, accredited investors. And I know you work with guys from, from zero up to half a million. But if you're going to get into this, because a lot of guys will buy one property and they stop. And then all of a sudden it goes empty and they're having to carry that nut for three or four months. They freak out. I don't want to be an investor anymore. And they get out. We're not doing it the right way. And I had to learn that the same way. Once I got three or four or five, one went vacant. Doesn't bother me. I'm sure it'll be rented back up pretty soon. Right. And that's a great transition into the, the last requirement here, reserves. I mean, why did they want reserves? Because something could happen, like you're saying. Exactly. And in my opinion, how much did you have? I mean, there's a lot of different thoughts out there, but you want to have at least a few thousand dollars of reserves lined up. And here's why I say it. You know, think what's the worst that can happen. Maybe HVAC goes up. Maybe your tenant goes vacant. Your thing goes vacant for a couple few months. I mean, I've had move costs as much as $20,000. They just trash the place. But that's right. pretty rare. Maybe you've got like some retirement funds, self-directed Roth IRA that you can pull money out or uh, take a HELOC on your primary residence's retirement funds or just beg mom and dad if that happens. But you really want to have a few thousand dollars as reserves in the bank in practice. And what, that's what liquid too. That? Yeah. What is your thoughts on that? No, I agree. I mean, buying an investment property, the key word is an investment. It's like buying stock. It's risky. Okay. Buying a, an investment property. It's risky. Okay. But the, the dividends can be great. And we all know that that's why we keep buying, but we have to be prepared for the worst. I mean, I had a, a, an area of town, I won't mention, but I had like a bunch of duplexes down there and 
some gang members across the street that every time I move a, t- a new tenant in, like a, let's just say a single mom with three kids, as soon as she gets in the car and goes to work, they come in and trash the place and I, I couldn't keep them rented. And so you have to deal with those kind of areas. So that back to that $50,000 property, chances are that $50,000 property is going to be in that $50,000 neighborhood, okay? So take that into consideration. But yeah, you want to have some some pucker there because there's always going to be situations that come around that you may have to repair an HVAC or what, whatever the case may be. Having a good management company helps significantly in that area, of course. We both know that. But yeah, I always keep some liquid around. As far as reserve requirements for the lender, we prefer that it's liquid, but we will take a look at your non-liquid liquid accounts so that you can achieve the underwriting goals on reserves. I mean, you can use HELOC or excuse me, um, like a 401k, an IRA, anything non-liquid, but we prefer liquid. So are you guys still looking for three to six months of reserves, of expenses of reserves? That used to be that way. It's recently changed. I say, I guess it's coming up on a year now, maybe a little bit more. It used to be six months, principal, interest, tax, and insurances on the subject property, and then two months on every property up to four, and then six months on every property after that. That has since changed. Now it's the number of unpaid debt that you have on loans. As an example, if you have loans, say from two loans to four loans, we want to make sure that reserve requirement is 2%. As an example, let's say you got two loans or 50000 apiece, so you have $100,000 of unpaid mortgage debt. 2% of that, obviously $2,000. That's your down payment requirement. And it steps up. You go from five to six loans. Now the, the down payment reserves is 4%. And then from seven to 10 loans, the down payment requirement is 6%. Now, once again, as I say, you can use your 401k, regardless if you're going to get to it or not. And they did change the the availability on those particular funds. We used to only give you like 60% of non-liquid. Now we're giving you the full 100%. So people always come to me, gosh, I don't know if I've got reserve requirements. I said, well, do you have a 401k? Well, yeah. How much is in it? 100,000. Well, you should be fine. Right? Yeah. Cause you know, you got 10 finance properties <laughs> and you got a million dollars of debt, 6%, 60 grand, right? If I'm doing the math right. And you should have that in your 401k by now. Absolutely. Or somewhere. Yeah. And I like, I like this percentage thing as opposed to the PITI because that thing could be fudged so much. It's so subjective. And I, <laughs> I like that. I like that. So you can use IRAs, 401k, SEP funds, and but you can't use parents' money, friends' money, right? Correct. Those are considered gifts. Gifts are allowed on primary residence all day long, but they're not on investment property. Never have been. Now, as far as like uh, seller concessions, how much can the seller give you back toward closing costs? 2% across the board on the sales price. Okay. You buy a hundred thousand dollar property. The seller cannot give you any more than 2% back to cover your closing costs. And that's considered all third party, whether you're getting a concession from me as a lender or getting a concession from a, uh, the seller or, or your real broker, estate agent. Or your broker yeah. kicks you back 1% or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. As long as it doesn't exceed 2%. And I see people run into that a lot of time because agents that are not dealing in this category much, they just don't know. Yeah. Because with primary residence, you can go up a little higher, like 3% or something like that. Actually, in some cases, you can go up to 6%. Yeah. So what I would do, well, a friend, I'm not going to say I'm doing it. <laughs> it's, it's kind of shady, but 
I guess if you were smart, you, what would you do is like, you know, if you buy a house for a hundred thousand dollars, you get a, that price set at, and then you talk to the seller's agent, talk to the seller and like, Hey man, just bump this up to 160% and then pay me the 6% for helping closing costs. You get in with less money down payment. And as an investor, that's really what you want to do. That's the name of the game, but you got to praise it, the thing. That's true. So you have to take that in consideration as well. And I encourage you to do all that up front versus coming to me afterward and saying after the appraisal's done, well, can we jack the sales price? No, it's done. The underwriter's already seen it. So yeah. you want to play that exercise up front. And most of the turnkeys, uh, ladies, you well know, they really won't do that because they have a flat profit line. They're going to sell you a house and you pretty much have to pay for all your closing costs. The one-offs in the MLS market with individual sellers, yeah, I mean, it's the Wild West, whatever you want to do. Yeah. You know, if you can pull that off 2%, sounds like a little bit, but that's 10% less down payment you can come to the table with, which is let the fight another day. Right. Fight sooner than later. Correct. Some things just aren't consumable in a podcast audio format like reports, investing trends, and my own personal investing happenings. Go to simplepassivecashflow.com backslash club to sign up for the Hui Deal Pipeline Club to get the monthly email, The Journey to Simple Passive Cashflow. Public service announcement, guys. For all the non-folks news and commentary not found on this podcast, go to simplepassivecashflow.com backslash club and sign up for the Hui Du Pipeline Club to get the newsletter with the latest happenings as I make the journey to Simple Passive Cashflow. Would you like to get access to the same reports and industry knowledge that I read? Would you like to know what I'm doing personally? Go sign up for the free newsletter at simplepassivecashflow.com backslash club by signing up for the Hui Deal Pipeline Club. So let's talk about the the gifts. Like, 
no gifts but hey you can season the, as what's the rules on seasoning those gifted money i guess like <clears throat> what we do as a fanny lender we take your last two months of bank statements or asset statements that show the funds in there for closing and if those funds on the statement do not show any large deposits, then as far as we are concerned, you've had that money in there forever. So if the last two statements don't have large deposits, then we're not going to question it. If it has a $50,000 large deposit that came in from dad, we're going to question it. And you're going to say, well, it came from dad. Well, guess what? It's a gift. You can't use it. So that got loosened up a little bit because I remember it used to be like six months. You can get this big infusion of cash from mom and dad or something like that. It really depends on the number of months that the lender asks for the statements. Some were back three months. Most of the time, it's been two months. Yeah. Uh, now, the again, that's, that's a, like a, another <laughs> overlay, right? Like people have different underwriting Correct. requirements. So but as far as Fannie's concerned, two months. Now, HELOCs uh, are, are really good to use, but you cannot use the HELOCs for reserves. Keep that in mind. It's very important. Got it. Okay? Down payment and closing costs, but not reserves. Got it. I mean, there's a lot of people teaming up and, you know, some people have some money. Some people have documented W-2 income. So they're trying to team up with this stuff. So a lot of people are kind of, the wheels are starting to turn with this. I mean, two months, that's nothing. Exactly. Exactly. What else did we talk, we have here, uh, talked about the credit score adjustments, 10 to 15, 10 to 30 year loans. Let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, my opinion is always trying to go the longest just in case. And if you want to pay it back. uh, I'm in full agreement. Me personally, I've got 30-year products on every property that I have. Even my primary that I'm, I'm closing on next month, I'm going with a 30-year product. And as you can see, for some of my hair, I mean, I'm not getting any younger. And people go, why don't you just pay these off? And when come retirement, you should be good to go. But the thing about it is, I know what my cash flow is today on that property. It's going to be there, if not better, down the road. That 30-year fixed rate, I'm going to keep until I die, Okay. And there's a lot of people that take a little bit more conservative approach. Well, you know, if I do a 15-year, I can pay it off in a certain length of time. But yeah, are, are you not in this game for passive income? That's going to whittle up all your passive income. Right. It's the same conversation with like you can buy points, right, to buy down your rate. But then what you're effectively doing is putting in a bigger down payment. And, uh, Correct. Yeah. yeah I'm, not point- a, I'm not a fan of holding on to the properties too long either. I mean, after five to 10 years, you should be looking to unload that thing because your equity position has grown a great amount. Hopefully. And you know, I actually made that mistake recently. Like last year I did three exchanges and I held on these, I guess it was eight properties for 15 years. Shame on me. Fully depreciated. You know, it just, it just didn't make sense on paper. But yeah, if you ought, you ought to think of an exit strategy, at least five years, if not five to 10. And that's the way I look at it. I just upgraded all my inventory. I upgraded from my opinion, the assets themselves were all good. Am I planning to keep it five to 10? Who knows? You know, the, the market could change. Most of your turnkey markets, as you well know, are not going to have the appreciations like you would in Hawaii or California, but they do have strong cash flows. So take use of why you're buying in those markets. Take use of the cash flow, okay? I can always send you an amortization chart after closing that shows you how much you want to pay it off. You can choose 10 years, 15 years, or whatever. But as you say, yeah, you could lose your job. You may need that income. If you're on a 15-year note and you're making hardly any income on that property, you don't get to have it. Yeah, I mean, you know, all the personal development stuff says about like keeping an open mind, yada, yada. If you're somebody who is still bent out of paying down debt, you need to wake up because that is person talking to you because the numbers don't make sense. Like I always say, the math will tell you what to do. If you're paying down your debt quicker, I don't know what, who you listen to, where you got that idea, what kind of insecurities you're working with, but that's not the smart thing to do. Leverage is your friend. I've been saying that forever. Use it. I mean, it, just, it's, it's, it works for you. It really does. All right. We'll move off of that. And what's this Fannie Mae blacklist thing? 
I'm surprised that was in there. Um, I picked up loans from, uh, well, let's talk about Chase. I think we all not real pleased with them. I picked up a loan last week from a guy that was doing a loan. It was up in Kansas City, I believe. And the lender did not like the seller. Well, that kind of discrimination. But I mean, the guy was a straight up seller of a property, whether he'd be a turnkey or whoever, he was a seller. Okay. Whether he, he could have been a convicted felon, he's still a seller. Okay. He's selling a piece of property. There's nothing wrong with the property. But Fannie Mae says, no, that person's on, or that, not Fannie Mae, Chase says, he's on our blacklist. That's a Fannie Mae blacklist. There is no such thing as a Fannie Mae blacklist. In the appraisal arena, there may be some, like Chase may have a couple of people on, on their list they don't like to do business with, but appraisers. there's no such, I'm appraisers sorry. you're talking about. Some, appraisers, yeah. yeah. But there's no such thing as a, as a Fannie Mae blacklist. So if your lender tells you that, it's an overlay, as we've talked about. Right. Let's talk about the appraisal process a little bit because it's kind of important because a lot of times you're picking up a property that has been um, recently foreclosed or just a piece of junk, like $20,000 piece of garbage. And then they fix it up, add the value, and then now you're kind of buying it as a turnkey product. And the way that these guys do the appraisals, they'll look at the, you know, hey, this thing was a $20,000 a few months ago, you know, and it'll kind of screw around with their evaluations. See. So how, how does that work, getting the, the right appraisal? And how does the Fannie Mae get their appraisals done? Well, I will tell anybody in every market that I work in, the appraiser piece is our weakest link. There's no question about it. The appraisers are independent contractors. They do not work for our lender or any other lenders. I mean, all the lenders will pick and choose the appraisers that they feel do a good job, and they'll put them on their appraisal panel. Okay. There's a lot of companies out there that don't have the luxury of, of creating their own appraisal department in accordance to the regulations which require you to do that. But a lot of them have to use a third party they refer to as an AMC. Well, uh, that's where a lot of the mistakes are made because a lot of the guys that don't understand the turnkey model and they do a lot of owner-occupied transaction, they may live 50 miles away from the product. Those guys come in and they'll just they'll tear you up on an appraisal. One of the things that we do when we go into a particular market, and let's say we're working with a turnkey provider, they know who these appraisers are that do a good job. All we ask for is give us five good appraisers that you think can do a good job in the market, regardless of whether they do owner-occupied or non-occupied, at least they understand how to do the turnkey provider. And if they can't hit it, then it's not there. I mean, they priced their property too high. Do we miss appraisals? From time to time in several markets, yeah. A lot of markets we never have a problem with. Some markets we have uh, some problems, maybe one out of 10, but they are missed. So you have to go back to the seller and say, okay, what do you want to do or make up the difference? But those are, that appraisal piece is very, very difficult, Lane. It really is. I wish there was a fix on it. You just got to make sure that the provider that you're working for has done their due diligence and knowing it's going to hit that sales price. Right. Because, I mean, one tactic is giving the scope of work to the appraisal and say, like, hey, here's what we did, you know, I mean, just take it into Always. consideration. Always. If you don't give them a scope of work, then you're not doing yourself a favor. I mean, any of the providers or sellers will meet them out at the house and provide that, that scope of work just to make sure that they take that into account. Yeah, I've actually done that a few times, giving it to the appraiser. Doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt. For some strange reason, it was the same appraisal for three times. <laughs> Did you get burnt three times? No, no, it worked. It was the good. Oh, one. good, good. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I mean, you know, if you look on, people look on like online. They're like, they go on Zillow or these Redfin or whatever, and it's like nothing on there is going to tell you what the price is. The price is going to be the market price, and especially when it's been rehab, like you have no clue what that thing is worth based on the internet. Correct. 
it's interesting. I just sold my house, the one I'm living in. I haven't sold it yet because I'm still in it, as you can see, since you decided to do this on a Saturday. But I looked at Zillow and they had it priced $40,000 less than what I sold it. And then I looked at Realtor.com and they had it on the high end of the spectrum. So, I mean, I think Zillow's getting better. I mean, you can look at Trulia, all these other sites, but it was a pretty good variance and it was a $40,000 variance. Yeah. But Zillow's pretty good. And then the great thing I like about it, I bought two properties last year, actually here in Dallas. And I paid one was 175 and another was 171. And a year ago, I looked at Zillow and I'm up to 220 and 221 on both properties. Hey, I'll take it all day long. And as you say, some people say, well, why don't you go ahead and sell it doing an exchange? Well, no, that's the asset that I want to keep for five years. But at least I got some built-in appreciation I wasn't expecting. Right. You know, like a lot of this stuff has changed on me in the last year. And I, I guess it's continued to do so. Where do you think the market is going? Like in terms of, are, are people, is anybody getting these loans? It doesn't seem like the case, right? Like how it was in 2007, 2008, from your vantage point. We took quite a bit of a knee jerk. They throttled back on a lot of things. I think in the last, say, three years, we're starting to see just a little bit here, a little bit there. Our loans still being written and being provided to uh, good quality buyers, absolutely. Even the marginal ones. Uh, and the, the one of the ones the most difficult is the self-employed people, as we talked about earlier, because a lot of times their income is, is adjusted downward because we can't fit them in that 45 to 50% back-end ratio box. But we're still giving loans. I mean, it all has to do with the, the three C's. I mean, the collateral, do they have the capacity to do it? The collateral itself, is the asset good? Does it come in and appraise value? And do they have the money to do it? The reserves, that's really the key. So I, don't, I, I think we're getting better but it's just a little bit of a time. It's hard to say, hey, look what happened here. The big adjustment we saw with the reserves. Now, that's a pretty good big, that's a big adjustment. Taking you know loans to uh, 10 with 20% down, that's a big adjustment. So we are st- starting to see some improvement. You know, I think with our new administration, you know, the, uh, Mr. Trump being a, a real estate guy himself, I think he's trying to, to get some reform built into the, to the Dodd-Frank Act and maybe give a little bit more relief. We are starting to see a little more of the non-Fannie lenders, as we spoke about earlier in, the, in this this interview about the, the portfolio guys, the we call them the Alt-A guys, the alternate A paper guys. They're starting to come in more and more. And I can't wait for them to get even more because you and I are both fannied out. We want to use those guys to buy more properties. And I think that's a good thing. And I, stay, I think we're starting to see that come back. Will we be where we were in the OK Corral in the Wild West back before the 08 bus? No, I think there's too much in place to prevent that from happening. But I do think we're going to start seeing more and more players hit the field to allow people like you and I to expand your portfolios. Yeah. So we got a lot of the notes on the on the website here. If you guys want to check it out, I would just Google Graham and lending on simplepassivecashflow.com. We've got a lot of how much the, the tick rates are on the, the interests on your credit score and that stuff, if you want to dig into that. And then Graham's, we'll, we'll put Graham's contact information on there. Hey, I got, I got some questions. I mean, that's kind of the end of the investor portion. For primary residences, like how does that work? So you've got a few properties, you guys done some loans for some folks, and now they want to go buy another primary residence. Is that something that you guys can help them out on too? And yes. how does, how does that work? I mean, well, we don't penalize you. We don't because of the number of. I mean, I'd be penalized if that were the case, but I'm actually having my, I stopped utilizing my company because I fanned it out and I'm having to use other companies, yeah. but I'm doing my primary residence and there's no limitation on the number of properties. So yeah, absolutely all day long. And a lot of the guys, like I say, that we work with on the, in California, 
I'm constantly going back and doing cash out refinances or buying new properties for. There are no limitations. There's there's a, still the conforming piece, the non-conforming, or should I say jumbo, non-jumbo. And it varies to like California, some of that non-jumbo money, where in Texas, we're at 434, where in some zip codes in California, they're up to like 600 and some. Even out in Hawaii, I mean, you're probably pretty high out there as well. Yeah, I mean, you can't get you can get a piece of junk for like eight hundred thousand dollars out here. What's the like the jumbo loan for that then for the state of Hawaii? Then I'll have to look it up. It varies per county, to be honest with you. And there's a Fannie Mae website. Just type in Fannie Mae loan size or loan limits, and it'll tell you. Yeah, and so, you just type in a zip code. I mean, that's the deal killer, right? Like the the loan size, the jumbo loan size is like probably like six to six hundred thousand. So if you're buying like a million dollar house, you got to come with. 400,000, 300,000 down payment to get Correct. the best rate. Or I well, just I, mean, I just go with an FHA and pay PMI. Is that the best way? Well, interesting enough, I looked up an FHA down in Key West, Florida, and their loan limit on FHA in one of the counties down there was a million dollars. Crazy. Where FHA is here, you know, in the, like the 300 and something thousand. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, it depends. FHAs can go high. VA can go quite high as well. Once again, I'd have to you give me a zip code, I'll look it up and tell you what you're available. Are you doing VA loans too, or is that more of a specialty? Yeah. Well, we do them all day long. Not yeah. as many as what we do on Investor. I get one maybe, I don't know, once a quarter, I'll get a VA. Probably once a quarter, I'll give an FHA, but the rest of it's mainly conventional. Yeah. So how do you, where do you look up for the FHA thing? I can kind of look it up right now, actually. Yeah, the FHA loan limits, it'll tell you. Okay. So after you hit those those limits, you got to just come with a down payment then, right? For the- right. Or you, you know, go bleed on into the jumbo category. And, and on the jumbo category, one of the things I want to make sure you understand is when you get up into that category, they're very critical on the uh, credit score. A lot of them only talk to you without at least of 700 credit score. So keep that in mind. Yeah. So this is something I got to think about before I leave the day job then, right? True. <laughs> We're not going to begin to talk about my energy structure or how I on that equity stripping thing, but that's to another podcast and <laughs> might be a little bit too much information for folks today, but yeah, thanks. You, you already kind of confused them and that's great. I think. Well, I'll tell you uh, what, I do have a guide that I can send you that really talks about everything we talked about here today. And I sent it out to a lot of the newbies that are just now getting into it. And it, I don't like writing books by any means, but I put together this guide simply because I've been doing this for 20 years with investors. They all ask the same questions. They all have the same scenarios, so I just put it all in current cool. uh, guideline for parameters, put it in a guide, and I can shoot that to you free of charge. Cool. Yeah, I'll, we'll put that in the um, on our website, and then people can download that there. So that's all in okay. one place. And Yeah, thanks, for Graham, for uh, coming on on a Saturday. My Appreciate pleasure, it. Lane. I wish I could be a little bit more casual like you next time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Matt. We'll talk to you later. All right. Take care. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.